Good morning, church. What a joy to come and to be here today and to rejoice together. Amen. We get to focus on a psalm this morning that will help us to do that very thing and will call us to do that very thing, to rejoice in the Lord. Please open to Psalm 118. If you have a pew Bible, uh, if you grab the Bible in front of you, that should be on page 511. And we'll be reading the, reading the whole psalm here. And that will be our, our focus for our time this morning. As you turn there, uh, just want you to say a, say a couple introductory comments about this psalm. Uh, psalm 118 is part of a, a collection in Jewish tradition that's called the Hillel or the Egyptian Hillel. Because it, uh, and it's the name given to Psalms 113 through 118. And the reason it's called the Egyptian Hillel is because uh, it was uh, used um, to celebrate Passover, and the themes um, uh, of the, uh, that are addressed in those psalms um, also celebrate what God did in delivering Israel from Egypt. Uh, this psalm, 118, is the close of that section, and so it's sort of the climax of that whole section. Um, this uh, this psalm and the section 113 through 118 uh, was greatly loved, and it still is greatly loved by the Jewish people. It's held uh, in their liturgical traditions. They celebrate it uh, when they celebrate Passover. Uh, they were, they, we know historically that they celebrated it not only at Passover, but also recited it at the Feast of Tabernacles um, and other, other feasts as well. This was a well-known psalm. It was a, a loved psalm. Uh, one of the things I came across um, was that, that uh, supposedly scribes would, uh, in order to make some money, they would take a student and teach a student, and they would write down for that student uh, a, a small section of Scripture for them to then study and memorize. And, and out of different portions of Scripture, often the Hillel was one of those that were given to instruct children. And so it was a, a well-known section. And unfortunately, to my shame, and probably to many of our, to the rest of you, your shame, uh, we might not even know what's going on in any of those Psalms, let alone this one. But we are forced, as we read the New Testament, to encounter this Psalm. Because did you know that this Psalm Psalm 118 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's up there with Psalm uh, 110 as, as, as the one that is, has re contains the most citations and allusions to. And so this is an incredibly important psalm. Uh, it was important to Jesus. He quoted it. It's important to the disciples. All four of the Gospels record references to it. Uh, it was important to Peter, who based an, uh, not only uh, an address on, uh, uh, to Israel's leaders on it, but also uh, in, his, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in his epistle, he also uh, cites it. Um, it's, it's a psalm that was loved and known and, and sung and celebrated. 
And so it'd be good for us to become more familiar with this psalm this morning. Because it's a psalm, again, that calls us to rejoice and to be glad. This psalm will not only call us to rejoice and be glad, but it will also give us the basis and reason for that rejoicing, as we will see. So let's read this psalm together. Psalm 118. The word of God reads, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I cried, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you and thank you for this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this psalm. And we pray, God, that our lives would be changed as we read and as we meditate upon this psalm. Lord, we pray that it would cause us to be a people who rejoice with more delight. That we would be a people, Lord, who give thanks, Lord, with a far greater measure of gratitude than we've ever given before, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would help us to to understand, Lord, and to be encouraged and to uh, be moved to, to join in this song with utmost gladness to you. Make us better worshipers. Make us a more thankful people, Lord. Forgive us, O Lord, when we've lacked joy over your salvation. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have lacked joy in the work that you have done through your Son in sending him and in raising him from the dead and in seating him at your right hand. Lord, may we never grow tired of those things. May we be in awe of the work, the great work, the marvelous work that you worked through your son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, we have every reason to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. We have every reason to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. And this passage takes us right to the center of it. And you may think, how does it it do that? How does it take us right to the center of that which we are to be most glad and to be filled with joy over understanding and over uh, over singing? We're going to find out in a moment. But we have before us an invitation, and a call, and the the foundation for believers' jubilant joy. We should be glad and rejoice in the Lord. Why is that the case? We see in the first verse, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. How do we know that God is good? For his steadfast love endures forever. How do, we, how, how do we know or how has his steadfast love been demonstrated? That's the question we want to ask. And that's the question which our psalm answers. In this psalm, in Psalm 118, we see God's steadfast love demonstrated in the salvation of the rejected stone so that we will erupt with joy and sing glad songs of thanks to God. I'll just say that again. So if you take nothing else, here it is. This psalm, we see God's steadfast love demonstrated in the salvation of the rejected stone so that we will erupt in praise with joy to sing glad songs of thanks to God. We're going to work our way through this psalm this morning under four headings. Uh, and 
that that more or less follow four four movements or four sections of this psalm. And the first one that we will deal with here, or we'll, we'll step into, is the stone's directive. We see this in verses one through four. The stone's directive in verses one through four. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I'm calling this the stone's directive because as we keep reading through, we have, I believe, a, a, a uh, consistency with who the speaker is. There's no shift from verses one through four to verse five. So one through four is this call to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. And then the reason why they should do that, verse five, out of my distress, I cried to the Lord. And that first person speech will be carried through all the way down to one who in verse 22 is recognized as the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so when I speak here of the the stone's directive, I, I believe it's the stone who is calling us to give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And the stone not only calls us to, to do that, but gives us the reason why. God's, God's love, God's love, his goodness is the reason why. And his faithfulness and his kindness to his people and to his promise to David that he made. He made a covenant and a promise to David that he would set one of David's sons on, on, on David's throne and he would reign over Israel and over the nations and bring in righteousness and peace and justice forevermore. This is the one who's going to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And so God has shown his steadfast love by the work that he has done to save this rejected stone and to make him the cornerstone. Now, I've already sort of showed you my cards a little bit, but I have to admit that at the front here that there is tremendous debate over who this, you know, uh, stone is and, and how we would interpret this, this psalm is the, is the, and what is the original context or occasion of this psalm. Some people think that this psalm, because it, it pulls on some different language from Exodus chapter 15 where the song of Moses is sung. Some people think that Moses could be the, the author and that Moses is sort of like a, a stone who was rejected, you know, and he came to the people. The people are like, who made you a ruler and judge over us, right? And then Jesus, as the prophet that Moses promised, who is like Moses, then functions in the same way and is rejected like Moses was. And so there'd be this typological connection between Moses and Jesus, both as the cornerstone, as a stone that was rejected and the cornerstone. Others think David is the one who, who is the, uh, the one who, who wrote this and who thus uh, himself, we know that, that when, uh, when Samuel went to anoint, uh, find the king, uh, David like wasn't even called. All the other brothers came first and like, is there anyone else, right? Uh, and also David wasn't accepted at first. He wasn't accepted by Saul and he wasn't accepted by uh, the majority of, of, of Israel as well when he was anointed king. And 
so there's a sense in which some people think that David would fit well with this. And if so, then, then David is the stone, and he then also functions sort of prophetically as the greater David, who will come later, uh, who will experience the same, same things that David himself experienced. Others think it's not David, but it could just be some Davidic ruler, some, some king uh, of David in David's line, but we don't know because uh, it doesn't say. And yet this Davidic king also can sort of function uh, as a, a type of the, the coming promised son of David who, who would be uh, the Messiah. Others say it's Israel personified. This first person speech is, is speech of the nation. It shouldn't be taken as the speech of an individual, but you can, uh, you can just take it as the, the speech of the nation. And then there's this connection between Jesus uh, and Israel and that Jesus is sort of experiencing the same things that Israel experienced. And so once again, a sort of typological view that Israel is that stone that was rejected and became the cornerstone just as Jesus, the true Israelite, the king of Israel, was rejected and then became the cornerstone. So, I don't know about you. Oh, and then also this mention here, my, the, the, the view that I kind of already started leaning towards here is, is, is that this is specifically about Jesus. That this isn't about Moses, not about David, it's not about a Davidic king, it's not an uh, unknown psalmist, it's not Israel personified, uh, but it's about Jesus. And with, as I'm just wrestling to understand this text, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, how he's sitting there and he's reading the prophet Isaiah, uh, and then you, you have uh, Philip go over to him, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch's reading Isaiah 53. And it's talking about uh, how, how the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the lamb that would be pierced for our transgressions. And, and, and Philip asks the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, his response is, how can I unless someone guides me? <laughs> and I love that. And then it says that from that passage, he told him the good news about Jesus and told him that the one Isaiah was talking about was not Isaiah and it was not David, obviously, because Isaiah lived after David, and so it couldn't be David. But it wasn't, it wasn't anyone else but Jesus who was promised and who was the promised son of David, who would be the king of Israel, who would be the suffering servant, and who would be the ruling and conquering king portrayed for us in Isaiah 53 and in other passages as well. And so I think the same struggle, though, is before us with this psalm. How can we understand it unless someone guides us? And uh, I think that the guides we get in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament lead us to view this as the Messiah's song. This is about him. Moves us towards an identification of the individual who's speaking here in the first person as who is the, called the stone that the builders rejected. That one is Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, there are other Old Testament passages that refer to the stone as the Messiah, even early as, Genesis, as early as Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, it reads that, or we see Jacob blessing his sons, and it mentions that, that it mentions in this blessing for Joseph that Joseph's arms are being made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And then it says, after mentioning the mighty one of Jacob, says, From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the Almighty who will bless you. And so there's this kind of cryptic statement here embedded in these blessings of Genesis 49 that 
are, we, we see that there is one who is coming, who is shepherd of Israel and who is the stone. We see this theme also uh, picked up in Isaiah chapter 8. In verses 13 to 15, it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Likewise, Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes in him will not be in haste or will not be put to shame. And we could go to Zechariah chapter 3. We could go to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4, that promises from Judah there will come a cornerstone. We could go to Daniel chapter 2, that talked about a stone that was not cut by any human hand, that came and struck the image uh, of the vision that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had seen, and it shattered that, that uh, statue into pieces. And we could see that this stone is the Messiah in all of these passages. We need someone to guide us. The Old Testament has guided us, but when we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, he actually cites all three or he cites three different stone passages together to help us I, I believe see and understand that these have the same referent that they're referring to. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 it says as you come to him a living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a spiritual, uh, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he quotes three passages. The first one, one we just read with Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. The second one, our passage, Psalm eight one eighteen verse twenty-two. The third one, Isaiah eight fourteen. Each of those passages, which in their context identifies the coming promised Messiah as a stone. And so I think that we, if we listen to our guides, I think that we can understand this psalm to be speaking about the Messiah. But that said, uh, there are still difficulties with doing that. That is why the reason some interpreters have opted for something else. Um, Spurgeon has some sharp critique for those who take uh, the view that I'm presenting for, for, for you uh, this morning. But that be it said, I had to take a view. I had to present to you. I had to study the text and agonize over it and, and present and preach this to you. And so I'm hoping that I'm following the guide of the apostles and Jesus and their example, since they all referred to the stone as Jesus. So with that said, that might be the longest introduction ever. But that lays the foundation for this first wave of the uh, movement, and that's the, the Stones Directive. Think about how much greater significance this call to worship takes on if it's the stone telling you to sing and to rejoice and to be glad and to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. And then he's gonna give you the reason for that, the reason you should rejoice, the reason you should give thanks, the reason we know that God's steadfast love endures forever is because the stone has been saved. He has been vindicated. He has been raised, exalted. 
So learn and see the steadfast love of God in the life of the stone, in the testimony of the stone. And then you will see that, that, that all of us who are like living stones, as Peter says, built on that one foundation stone that is Christ. If we see and understand that Christ has been saved, if Christ has been vindicated, and Christ was victorious, and that Christ will rule and reign, and that he conquered death, and he conquered all his enemies, then we can be certain that our lives built on the foundation of that living stone who is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, could never be more safe, could never be more secure, could never be more sure, could never be more free of, of fear and doubt and unbelief and uncertainty. We do not need to fear. God is on our side if we are on his stone. And so we should rejoice in him and be glad. And so this, this moves then to the, the second section of this psalm, which is, uh, gives us the reason for the directive, as I've already mentioned. This next section is the, the stone's deliverance. The reason to rejoice and be glad is because the stone has overcome. The stone has experienced uh, rejection, yes, distress, yes, but the stone has overcome. And so in order to hear the stone's testimony, we see we can break up verses 5 through uh, 18 under, under three ideas. First, his suffering. Second, his salvation. And third, the lessons that he hopes for us to share with it. And so let's look first at his suffering. We see the stone's suffering in verse 5. It says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. We see again uh, in verses 10 through 13, uh, all the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And so this distress, this, this, uh, experience of the enemies being close and, and gathered and surrounded about him, even like bees swirling, ready to sting and ready to attack. He is pressed in. The word for distress there literally speaks of like to, to, be, to be pressed in and, and in the just narrow, like binded straight uh, in, in, in a narrow place. And what he, what he ends up saying is that out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and he set me free. This distress that he, uh, that he experiences, uh, the word specifically used here is only used in two other places. One of those is in the near context of Psalm 116, which speaks of when the psalmist says here, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. That word for pangs there, or the, 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 the narrowness and the, the tight pressure of Sheol is described. And so I think it's quite possible that, this, that, that uh, the stone here is describing death. The, we also see in verse, we also see in verse 13 him describe this this distress. He says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And in verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely, 
but he has not given me over to death. And so a key issue right here that impacts your interpretation of this verse is, is this a deliverance from death? Well, you could say it's a deliverance from death, definitely, but is this a deliverance before the person died or is this a deliverance after the person died? And that's, that is, I admit, difficult to, to see in, in this passage. Um, you have a statement here that he, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And I think that, uh, that it's, it's, it's certainly possible for, for this to describe the suffering that Christ suffered. Uh, we're told in Hebrews 5 verse 7 that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so Jesus' cries are described here as, as, uh, as one who, uh, to God who is able to save from death. And that's exactly what we know in the resurrection that happened. Three days later, he was rescued from his death. And that death that he suffered is described uh, as, as discipline um, or learning obedience in Hebrews. And also in Isaiah 53, it's described as the chastisement that brought us peace. And so this, this distress, this uh, being pushed, this discipline that the, uh, that the stone is experiencing, I, I believe can fit well with what Christ suffered for us and what he accomplished for us on the cross in his death for us. That said, there are others who disagree with that. And again, uh, I think I've said this before on things, certain things like this. If you, if you take another view, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. But try to convince me and I'll try to convince you. But notice how uh, something that, that Peter does uh, in Acts 4, uh, it says... Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. Uh, and then he quotes Psalm 2 uh, about the na why do the, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he, they stop the quote there and then says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And so the, 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 the mention of Psalm 2, of the nations raging and coming and setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, uh, and, and that ultimately in Psalm 2, moving to a point where, where God uh, shatters his enemies and destroys them in his wrath through his, through his Messiah, uh, we see that th that thing that's going to happen in the second coming was also already being shown in the first coming as well. And that's why that verse is quoted in Acts 4 to that purpose. And so if Psalm 2 can function in that sort of a way, I think Psalm 118 can function in that sort of way as well. Jesus was surrounded on the cross. You know, Psalm 22, like dogs, uh, they, they surrounded me. Um, uh, and, uh, a company of evildoers surrounds me. Uh, but then we also know 
that after the deliverance from death, after the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, he is going to come and he's going to save Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 13. He's going to save the nation of Israel who is surrounded by Gentile nations who are seeking to destroy it. And so I think that this psalm can be uh, uh, used in reference to the Messiah's suffering and his first coming and in regards to his judgment when he comes again at his second coming. So that said, when we see the distress mentioned here, we also see the salvation. The distress is not recounted just to be recounted by itself but it is the avenue towards which praise is offered because God answered and God moved. And the stone cried out to the Lord, called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him. And so we see the salvation of the, the stone mentioned. And we see this mentioned in a number of verses as well. Uh, we see in verse 13, I was, pushed so, I was pushed hard that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And then he just erupts in praise. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death. Now, again, we have a statement in, in verse 18, and this is the one that Spurgeon centers on. He feels like if you interpret this any other way than this guy not dying at all, then you're, you're, you're doing funny business with the text. And I understand that, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But I have to recognize that there are other passage, this passages that are similar to this one. For example, in Psalm 16, verse 8, there we, we, we hear it said, I, I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And then directly after saying, I will not be shaken, he says, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And you can make the same sort of argument that Spurgeon makes and say, well, it says he won't die, so it has to mean that he won't, you know, he won't go to the realm of the dead. He has to be saved before that. And you could make a similar argument. He says that he won't be shaken, so how could he die? How could he go to Sheol? How could he die at all? But what we see is that he did. He did, but his time there was short. Only three days was he there. And so in this sense, as I think an appropriate sense in which we can understand that the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Jesus, uh, 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 Peter says that the grave could not hold him. So, so he's not perpetually in this state of death for any length of time longer than three days. And he's only there three days in order to show his power and dominion over death, in order to conquer death, and to set his prisoners free. And so I think that it's possible without any funny business uh, to understand this as, as a, a statement that entails that he did die, but he was raised 
and that he will live forever. Jesus makes some similar statements. He says in, in John 11, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He also says in John 6, verse 51, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And listen to this. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the people who in that context who end up eating the bread, which is figurative for for putting their faith in the son and receiving him, they died. But Jesus said that they would live forever. And also John 8, Jesus says in John 8, 51, verses 51 to 50, uh, 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And, and look at the response that uh, the Jews say to him. They say, now we know you have a demon. <laughs> Abraham died, as, the prophet, and as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? <laughs> Jesus is making himself out to be the one who gives eternal life. The one who is the resurrection and the life. The one who will raise every single person who puts their faith in him from the dead to eternal life to never die again. And he himself proved that through his own death and resurrection where he himself was put to death. And where he himself, even though he was put to death, he was still alive to God. And he then was raised and put human flesh back on with a glorified human body three days later. And he was raised and exalted by God's right hand. God's right hand worked valiantly. God's right hand worked valiantly and exalted him to the right hand of the Father, where he then sits now and rules and reigns. And if God has delivered you in that sort of way, what, what else would you say? Then I will not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And that is the same thing that we can say as well, knowing that we have resurrection life in Jesus Christ. I can look death straight in the face. I will not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. My Lord Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And just as he was raised from the dead, so too I will be as well. Death has no dominion over him, and neither will it have over me, since he has broken and shattered its power through his resurrection. And so we see the suffering, and we see the uh, salvation here of the stone. And also there's some lessons for us as well. And I love this. Why? He, in verses uh, 6 excuse me, verse six through, through nine, I think we get some lessons to learn from this experience of salvation. And he can't help but just bring them forth. Even before he details the, 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 the suffering and the distress, he says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is that, is, that not, is that not an assurance, assurance that we can have? Is that not the same confidence that we can have? I think that this is the, the very verse that Paul pulls on uh, in Romans chapter 8 when, when he says, triumphantly, victoriously, if God is for us, who could be against us? 
And that even if we are considered sheep to be slaughtered, we are still more than conquerors. And then we will never be separated from his love. You see, when you believe in the stone, then you are on the Lord's side. And the Lord is on your side because the Lord is on the stone's side. You follow? And if you're against the stone, guess who you're also against? You're against the one who sent the stone. You're against the one who placed the stone. You're against the one who's called everyone in the world to believe in the stone. And so you can't pretend, you can't act like, oh, I'm good with God. I'll be all right. I, you know, I'm doing good things with my life, but I do not recognize that he so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And that son is the only hope that I have for forgiveness of sins and for someone to fix this world and conquer death and sin and, and, and destroy the power and works of the devil. He is the only one. But if I believe in him, then we have nothing to fear. What can man do to me? Jesus says, don't fear the one who can destroy, you know, kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Brothers and sisters, that is the duty, the duty and the prerogative and the authority of the stone. We believe in him. We trust in him. In doing so, we know the Lord is on our side because the Lord is on the stone side. What can man do to me? All he can do is end my life in this fleshly tent, but God will raise it. And he can never take, my, take the eternal life away that has been given to me. And so this is why we can, we can rejoice. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. Better is it to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. These are the lessons for us. Man will not deliver you from, no other man will deliver you from sin than the stone. Man in himself is sinful. The stone is sinless, perfect, precious. In every way, tested and tried and yet without sin. You and I have no hope for anything, for any deliverance from death, for any salvation to eternal life, for any entrance into heaven, for any resurrection and joy on the new heaven and the new earth, except for the Lord, us taking refuge in the Lord. No man, no prince, no authority, no, no pope, uh, no power, no president, no king of earth can do any of that for us. And this is why we take refuge in the Lord. And we do that through taking refuge in his son, in the stone. So this is the testimony of the, of the stone that we have <clears throat> given for us so that we might Rejoice and give thanks to the Lord and be glad for the, the work of salvation that he has done. We saw the stone's, uh, the stone's deliverance. We saw his, uh, his, his, his distress, his suffering, his salvation. And now we see uh, in the next part of this psalm, the stone's devotion. We see this in verses 19 through 21 or excuse me, 19 through 28. And this section here on the, sons, the, on the stone's devotion is helpful for us I, for in a lot of ways, but one in particular 
is it's awesome to see what is the response of the one who has been saved and delivered by the Lord. What is the response to the one whom the Lord has given victory over his enemies? What should that response be and what is it? What is it that the stone does? We see that he goes and he commits himself to the Lord to give thanks to him. This is the stone's devotion. Right after the victory, I'm headed straight to the temple where I am going to enter and publicly in the midst of the people of God, I am going to give thanks to him. How do we, how do we see this? Well, we, the, these verses portray for us a, 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 a procession, a victory procession to the temple. We see the mention of the gates. We see entering through the gates. We see uh, the, the prayer offered inside the gates. We see also uh, in verse 26, mention of this one, the stone being blessed from the house of the Lord. Uh, and then also we see mention of uh, binding the festal sacrifice and taking it up to the horns of the altar. All these things paint the picture of the stone's devotion. He goes from his salvation and victory straight to the temple to give thanks to God. And so first, let's look at his, his entrance into the temple. We see that in verse 19 uh, through 21. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to, to the Lord. The main thing and the first thing that he wants to do is give all the credit, all the honor, all the glory to God for this victory. What shall he do for such a marvelous salvation? Literally the only thing he can do. And everything which the person who has been saved by God's grace and who has been made victorious in him, it's what, what everyone should do. Give thanks to the Lord. First thing, thanks. So he goes, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then in verse 20, it says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And I think when he's inside, verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. There's his prayer. And he offers it to the Lord. And so he enters in and he, his intention is to give thanks publicly. And he does that as we see in verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. That's something that every one of us could say to the Lord this morning, if you believe in him. I thank you that you have answered me. That when I prayed, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, forgive me of my sins, Lord, Forgive me of all the sins and iniquity that I've done in my life, Lord. I'm putting my faith and trust in your son. We know that the Lord answered us and his son became our salvation. So we should thank him that he answered us and has become our salvation. So not only does he enter in, but then secondly, he's welcomed. He's welcomed into this temple. And upon entering in, he gave his thanks. But now the, the others who are worshiping there welcome him. And they rejoice over his arrival. And so there's a switch from all the first person language that we've seen so far in this psalm to then verses uh, 22 to 26, where 
excuse me, verse 27, where we see first-person plural language. Instead of I, 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 and me, and, and I shall live, and I may enter, and I thank you, it goes to this is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And so we can, uh, and then verse 27 again, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. And so this, this shift from the singular to the plural, I think indicates for us that this is the response and the welcome of the worshipers when this king comes. When he enters, after he's been saved, after he's been, been victorious in battle, he comes and he is welcomed as their king. He's welcomed as their Messiah. And they welcome him with this sort of a welcome. In, in three ways, they acknowledge him as the cornerstone, they sing Hosanna, and then they pronounce a blessing upon him. All of which, I believe, are, are, are reserved to show that this is the promised Davidic son, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, that he alone is Israel's king. And so, first we see that he, they acknowledge him as the chosen cornerstone. says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Those who, who, uh, those who did not receive this man, those who, who surrounded against him, those who, who marshaled their resources and their powers and their efforts uh, to oppose him, these all will realize that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so this cornerstone, the one who has been rejected by man, Peter says, is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And God made him the foundation of everything that he would do in bringing salvation to the world. There is no salvation in any other name except for Jesus because God has made him the cornerstone. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says uh, that, that believers in Jesus have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so uh, 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 20 both recognize Christ as this stone. He is the foundation which the church is built on, and he is the foundation which the restored nation of Israel is also built on. They must view him as such in order to enjoy his reign. They have to turn and they have to see that they had rejected him, but now God has made him the cornerstone. If they want to have any life after death, if they want to have any hope of eternal life, any hope of, of blessing and salvation, it must come through this stone. So the worshipers recognize the stone as the one who has become the cornerstone. And then they say, welcome him with hosannas. And I put it that way, but if you look at verse 25, look what it says. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And when this is cited in the New Testament, uh, it's, 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 it's shortened. So we have, uh, in Hebrew, we have ana hoshi ana. But then that's just the first Anna is taken off, and so it's just Hoshiana that's preserved, or that sounds really close to Hosanna. 
So when we sing Hosanna, and when Jesus was entering uh, in, uh, and they started singing Hosanna to him, this is what they're doing. They're quoting this verse, which in this verse and in this context speaks of the king's victory and his coming to the temple to rule and to, and to reign. And they, they crown him and they welcome him and they acknowledge him as Messiah. And they shout this word of prayer and, and, and to him, save us. We pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. And so they recognize him as the cornerstone. They welcome him with powerful shouts of Hosanna. And then the, the third thing here that they do is they pronounce a blessing. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so each of these acts of welcome is a jubilant acknowledgement of the rejoicing of the one who has come, that he is the, the stone. He is the, he is the one who we are to sing Hosanna to. He is the one who is blessed, who comes in the name of the Lord to bring and share his victory and salvation with us. And so with that background in mind, then you understand what's going on in the triumphal entry. You understand in Matthew uh, chapter 21, when Jesus enters, that, that you, have, uh, you, you have people shouting and, 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 and singing, uh, singing out to him. And it says that he enters into the temple on that occasion as well. And they recognize him as the, uh, uh, the, the, crowd that, uh, the crowd that is there and his disciples recognize him as Messiah. And it says that the, the, the deaf and the, uh, and the lame came in, uh, excuse me, the blind and the lame came in and he healed them there. And people were astonished by the marvelous or wonderful things that the Lord was doing. And then it says children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And Israel's leadership, the chief priests and the scribes, are angry. They're angry. It says that they were indignant. And they ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying to you? See, now that you understand the background of Psalm 118, you realize that even the children were acknowledging and praising Jesus for being that promised king. And they're crying out to him, Oh Lord, save us. Oh Lord, give us success. Hosanna to the son of David. And so I think that this is helpful because the, even, even the crowds, uh, even the disciples, even the children understand Psalm 118 and they see it as the very words by which they will recognize and proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. And the, the enemies of Jesus, the chief priests and scribes, know that they know that. They don't say, hey, you're misinterpreting that psalm. They don't say, hey, no, that song's not about the Messiah. They say, Jesus, do you realize what they're saying to you? You hear what they're saying. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You should tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, nope, because their very praise was ordained by God. You could read that in Psalm 8. And so they understand. And the, the leaders are mad because the people were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah who had arrived. But unfortunately, 
Israel as a majority, though there's a remnant who accepted and believed in the son, Israel as a majority rejected him. The chief priests, the leaders, they, 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 they conspired together with Gentiles, Romans, uh, Pontius Pilate, and, and others to put him to death. And instead of receiving the king and going and offering uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to God for the king, they take him and mock him as if he's the king, put him on a cross and crucify him. Instead of offering sacrifices of thanksgiving, Jesus himself ends up being sacrificed on the cross. And they are not giving thanks to the Lord for his death, but they're mocking it. But still, there is the promise in this text and others that the Lord Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, after he's exalted to the right hand, when he comes to return and to reign, Jesus says that, that the day will come when he will be greeted by Israel. And we see this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 38. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus understands the context of that psalm. He knows that psalm is messianic. He knows that's the way that Israel will greet the arriving, coming, victorious Messiah. And Jesus says, even though the majority of you have not noticed the day of your visitation in my first coming, you are going to. And in fact, you will not see me until you acknowledge and say with your lips, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a day that will be. I can assure you that on that day, Jesus will not be offered as a sacrifice because he's already done that. But, but rather, he will come and his people will welcome him and they will sing praise with him and they'll sing hosannas and they'll acknowledge him as the cornerstone and they'll pray to him and they'll bless him and say, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord and they'll offer praise in the temple and they'll offer sacrifices in the temple and they'll give him the glory for all that he has done in saving and redeeming not only Israel but also the nations. He has shown himself to be the savior of the world, just as this psalm details for us. The Lord is good. How do I know he's good? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Those ancient promises of him, his, that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that, that there would come one who would be the shepherd, the stone, that there, would be, that there would be one who, who would be the descendant, the son of, of Abraham and the son of Isaac and the son of Jacob and the son of Judah and the promises made that that promised son of David uh, would come and would rescue and redeem his people and, and that he would have a throne that endures forever and ever. All of that is caught up in the Lord saving his rejected stone and in making him the cornerstone. And there's nothing that assures us that that is the case more than the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so our thanksgiving, 
our joy. I've, I've called it this before, should be some Holy Spirit resurrection joy over the resurrection that God worked through his son and that he also will work in every single one of us. Father, we thank you. You have demonstrated your goodness. You have proven it. You have showed it. And we are going to, Lord, if we believe in you, we're going to enjoy it forever. May glad songs be in all the tents of the righteous. May your people praise you, Lord. And may all the peoples praise you. May they lift up their voices and sing for joy because you, Lord, have done it. You have provided a savior. You have rescued and vindicated him. You have saved him from his distress. You have exalted him and you will send him to, to destroy all of his enemies and to rule and to judge the world and to bring in everlasting peace and righteousness. You will have him bring in his kingdom and you'll have him bring in a new heaven and a new earth, Lord. And we long for that day. So Lord, may you hasten it. And may we, as your people, join in and sing our praise to you, Lord. Lord, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.